Uh, well, listen, I'd invite you to open your Bibles this morning. Uh, we're going to kind of look at a story often told at Christmas time, the Good Samaritan. And uh, no, probably this might be the first time you've heard it at Christmas time, but it's quite fitting, as you'll see. We've been in this Advent conspiracy series, which is worship fully, spend less, give more. And then this fourth week is about loving all. And the challenge that we've been putting out to our congregation has been quite simple that we would take one less gift this year that we would have purchased for someone else, that we would have invested time in to go get for someone else, and that we take that gift of resource and money and all of that and invest it into those who have less, little, or none. And uh, so one of the things that we've been doing is pushing up against some Christmas traditions. Um, If your house is anything like my house, it's not just the immediate family we're talking about, but this affects the extended family. And so we've been having some interesting dialogue with our family. And um, I come from uh, a divorced home. And so for me, holidays have always been about scheduling who gets to go when, where, and there's feelings involved and all of this whole big kind of, you know, mush pot of of emotion that goes on. And um, so now we throw into this mix, you know, (laughs) This idea that, oh, by the way, we're, we're feeling called and led to kind of change things, and it has very little to do with the recession. It's not that we're just trying to save some money this year. We're, we're trying to really rethink and, and think about the distribution of things. And, and those are challenging and convicting thoughts for us individually, for us as a congregation, and for those who haven't kind of walked on this journey with us, uh, those in our extended family. I don't know if you've had a misunderstanding go on, but I've had um, much misunderstanding. And uh, that's part of what keeps life interesting, I suppose. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to start this morning. And uh, I really love that, that this idea of love all, where this thing lands, lands on our Christmas Sunday. Um, because uh, as we've been singing about already, as I just see uh, trees and lights and, and festive things, it's just this joyful thing about loving all. And, and people who are not religious understand that and get that and want that at Christmas time and talk about that at Christmas time. And the scriptures obviously have a whole bunch to say about that. Merry Christmas to all is really about becoming the Good Samaritan. That's why we're going we're gonna to look at the Good Samaritan this morning. And loving all is this idea of, of, being, of becoming the, the, the Good Samaritan. Um, how many of you have neighbors? Okay, we're awake. That was more of a test question than anything else. Uh, good. Yeah, you have neighbors. Even if you live out in the woods somewhere, they could be like miles away, but you have neighbors. Um, I don't know what it is. I think the Lord knew that my wife and I needed an ongoing daily uh, practice in loving people. Because God, for whatever reason, since I've been married to my wife and we've kind of gone off and started our own family, we have had a history of kind of at least one psycho neighbor in our neighborhood. And, um, and praise God, God sometimes puts them next door to us. And, uh, and so the very first place we had was over on Bascom Avenue, a little one-bedroom apartment. And uh, the next-door neighbor was the assistant manager. Now, we got along great with the, with the manager, but the assistant manager seemed to have it out from us uh, kind of like from the very beginning. The way we were introduced was him walking out of his door, and you know how these places are. You share a wall, so there's probably, like, he probably was part of our family. We just didn't know it. But uh, he was this guy. He came out, you know, about 9 o'clock at night and began just yelling at me. He was so mad, you know. And I was just sitting there kind of taken aback looking at this guy. And he was yelling at me for, you know, what am I doing? All this suspicious behavior. And I'm going, wow. And here's what it was. I was rinsing my wetsuit out after a day of surfing. But it was 9 o'clock at night. And he wanted to know why there was hose noise and what that sound was. And I'm like, 
well, here's the sound, like I put the hose on the wetsuit, and he goes, oh, okay, well, keep it down. Like that. So that was kind of my introduction to my next door neighbor, right? And I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm told to love my neighbor. So, so he became, you know, kind of a, a, a guy to go and say, okay, Lord, by your grace, I'm going to love this guy. Our next neighbor, we moved from there to a place over by Redmond Avenue, and we lived next door to, we kind of got to know the neighborhood really well. The guy that lives next door to us, aside from two times a day when he goes and comes to work, he actually hadn't been seen or talked to since the early 70s. He was just this recluse, and he'd pop his garage open, time it perfectly, boom, like this. And, um, and so the way, no joke, the way that we basically got introduced to this guy, we went and tried to, to, um, to say hi to him and kind of, you know, welcome ourselves to the neighborhood. And um, there was like not just a no solicitor sign, you know, the, the no solicitor sign, but there was a barricade, there was a locked gate, there was massive ivy, and if you kind of peer through, like there's, you know, guard dogs and, you know, those British soldiers. I mean, it was weird. It was this whole big maze. We couldn't even get to his door. And we actually left a note for him just saying, hey, we just want to introduce ourselves, and, you know, it's probably still there. But here's how we were introduced to him, is we were out, uh, I, was, I was out in the garage one day, and I heard this man yelling at my five- and three-year-old at the time, two boys. And he was yelling at them because this massive tree that for some reason the wind blew everything onto my yard, but technically was planted in his yard, but it all overhang, like almost like my whole driveway. My kids were pulling leaves off of that tree on our side of the, of the, of the yard, you know, and I came out to find a guy yelling at my five and three year old parents. How does this make you feel? terrible until you beat him up and it feels good. No, I'm kidding. That's not what happened. Everything in me wanted to react a certain way, and it was God's grace. I just said, God, this is my neighbor. I finally have my chance to talk to him. Uh, here's the nervous part. We're in the neighborhood now, and there's no psychos, so we suspect it might be us. We might be... We think we've morphed into that zone. So... Think about your neighbors. Maybe you're sitting here with your neighbors, but we're going to talk about neighbors this morning, okay? And I don't want us to lose the fact that we're talking about our physical neighbors as well. Sometimes we make this really, you know, metaphorical and we're supposed to love our neighbors. We say, yeah, good job on that. We're like, no, 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 the person next to you. We're like, not him. You know, we're talking about him and her and across the street and all of that. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse, uh, starting in verse 25, I want you just to, to kind of follow along here. Uh, This is, uh, on on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay, so we already see the motive there. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? That's Jesus talking. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds like he's been to church, huh? Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now, we've probably, if you've grown up in church, you've seen this, you know, portrayed a hundred different ways. But, uh, but here's a, a general gist of the story. We have a staunchly re- re- religious person asking about how to inherit eternal life. And again, an interesting way of phrasing that question, inheriting it and thinking in family terms. It's obvious from his answer that he possessed really good doctrine. He answered well. Jesus said, you've answered well. You know, and that really is. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great summary of the law. Uh, Jesus tells him that actions must ac- uh, accompany his, his belief. So words and belief aren't enough. He says what? He says, do this and you will live, right? So it's not enough to come with the right doctrine, the good answer, the church answer, rattle it off, have a confession, have memorized certain things. But it's actually to, to know that and then go do it, right? 
And then the next question, as we kind of move on, it kind of reveals where his heart's treasure is. He asked this really important and, and interesting and good question, and that's this question. Who is my neighbor? Okay, that's the question he's about to ask. But apparently he's trying to evade responsibility with the question. So instead of asking it from a good motive, he's asking it from a little bit more of a selfish motive. Maybe trying to say, and maybe trying to justify himself, right? Saying, I think I've done enough. I mean, really, come on, how much can we really do? I mean, I gave to the guy with the giant red kettle, you know, out in front of Target. I gave at the office. I chip in at church. And I even gave, I volunteered my time to an event this, this December. So maybe he's just along those, those lines of thinking. How much do I really have to do? So he's looking to justify himself. Look at, look at the, the passage in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, so this Good Samaritan story is being set up by by all of this discussion. So we don't just read the Good Samaritan story out of context. Here's how Jesus is answering this question, who is my neighbor? In some ways, asking, who do I have to love, right? How far do I have to go to love? Here it is. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and, I, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. After Jesus had told the story, he then kind of probably levels his eyes and kind of asks this, this penetrating question, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So there's a story of the Good Samaritan. This whole idea, this whole picture of loving all. This big question of to whom can I be a neighbor has nothing to do with geography, with citizenship, or race. In essence, Jesus was saying this, wherever people need mercy, show them mercy. And if you know much about the story of this, some of you have probably heard this a thousand times. Some of you may have never heard it. But the Samaritan is the least likely choice for the person to be the hero of this story. We don't really see that this is a a parable per se. This may have been a common occurrence, not a common occurrence, but a commonly known story of something that actually happened. That a Samaritan of all people would have come and been the one to have, have done all this thing. And not just done the bare minimum, but really kind of gone the extra mile in loving this person. This lawyer wanted to discuss neighbor in kind of a general way, right? He wanted to talk about, theoretically, who do I have to have mercy on? Theoretically, how much do I have to do? And he wanted to kind of keep it out here where it's really safe. And I'm, I'm fearful that sometimes in spiritual matters, I can fall into that same trap. I can talk about God's holiness. I can talk about our response to that. I can talk about our responsibility. I can talk about what it means to really respond to grace in my life. I can talk about loving my enemy in a theoretical way. Here's what Jesus does. He takes talking about neighbors, which is way out here, theoretical, hypothetical, and he brings it down to something really specific. 
He forces him to consider a specific person in need. How easy is it for us to talk about kind of abstract ideals and not like roll up our sleeves and start solving concrete problems? And that's kind of what Advent conspiracy is about. It's saying we've done Christmas a certain way and there's been so much good to it. It's not chuck all of how we've done Christmas, but it's just starting to, to rethink a few certain elements of that. And say, maybe there's growth here. Maybe there's, maybe there's whole elements that we're missing. The title this morning is Merry Christmas to All. And we sing that, and we say that, and we see that on cards, and we mail it to all of the people on our Christmas card list. But sometimes all is a whole lot easier than him or her, right? It's easier to keep it just kind of general out there instead of really dialing in and focusing in and doing something about it. We can discuss things like poverty and job opportunities and yet never personally help feed a hungry family. Or never personally walk with someone to help them find a job. Now here's what's fun about this morning. In some ways I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I happen to know as I look around, I can think of story after story after story after story where God just was like on your heart and you're like, I didn't even want to go do it, but God told me to go do it, so I went and did it. And you went and helped people and you come away from that experience a changed person. But it's easy for Christians, too, to play kind of the the political game and talk about these matters. But it's hard to see kind of real action attached to it. In this question of who is my neighbor, my brother-in-law put together some pictures that he took. And um, and I kind of just put it to music. I want you to watch this and think about this question of, of who is my neighbor. love that line that says echoes of his grace to everyone and something that's powerful about traveling to different parts of the country i know some of you are going to go travel but it's one thing going from san jose to phoenix right i mean there's there's some difference but not a whole lot but uh someone in our congregation is going to the philippines soon they're going to go back and visit some family and spend some time in the philippines and uh, i've never been to the philippines but i've been to some other countries and it, it's a it's a stark contrast when you when you get off your plane, when you walk away from kind of the air-conditioned, controlled environment, most things are comfortable, and into some places that are stark contrast to how we live. And there's something really healthy about going to these places and looking at them, and as you see kids playing in your street and you miss your own kids, you look at them and it dawns on you. Man, those are, those are my kids. Like Those could be my kids right there. And you're playing, you know, you're playing in the dirt with a kid and your sole source of, you know, toy is a rubber band that's about to snap on every throw. But you shoot it in the air and kids go get it and they bring it back and they're thrilled with that. And you do it again a different direction. And as you start to interact with these kids, you start to really look in their faces. You start to hug them and just be around them. And then you look at the mom. You go, man, that mom's got the same concerns, worries, thoughts, fears, joys, hopes that I do. That my wife does. And it's good, to be, it's good to be brought out of our kind of Disneyland experience that we live in. I wonder if Jesus were to answer this question around Christmas time. If his answer would be something like this, goodwill to all. That's a phrase that we hear a lot. But the all can be kind of misleading. We, we think all is us, like, like everyone lives kind of like we do. And when we see pictures and we're moved in song and we're... 
we're able to read news reports and whatever else and really get our minds around the fact that this isn't just a, a story, but these are real people. It changes things for us. Well, the question becomes this. What am I supposed to do? I don't know how many of you have seen a stripped, half-naked, beat-up Jewish person recently. Any this week? Okay, so you read this. You go, well, how does that apply to my life? Talking to a college kid this week. He's like, sometimes the Bible is so hard to apply to my life. So you're like, I don't even have a donkey, you know? I mean, if I would, I probably would let him ride on it. Well, well, how does that translate? Now, I know we could go bit for bit and kind of, you know, talk about, you know, Ford Pintos are sort of like donkeys, whatever, you know. But, um, but rather than that, let me, just, let me just paint a picture. The Bible has so much to say. I don't think Christians or even non-Christians need to learn so much more to get them started. I think most of us know already more than we'll ever accomplish in our wildest dreams by God's help. But it's still good to be reminded, isn't it? Goodwill to all. Let me just think about this for a second. Now, I got to thinking about goodwill to all. And that means one thing at Christmas time, and we sing it, and we have warm fuzzies, but this is the word goodwill that I see most of the rest of the year. Here's what goodwill means to a lot of people. Goodwill means this. If I have some leftover junk that I really don't want to deal with, but I feel kind of bad just chucking it because it's still got some value to it, I'll take it to Goodwill. So you go and you, and you take it to Goodwill. And in some ways, not that I'm bashing all things Goodwill, but there's a sense in that that for the person doing the giving, what are they thinking? Good riddance. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't have to deal with that. They took it. You know, that's what we do in our household sometimes. They took it. We're so glad about that. But, but what if that's the extent of our goodwill to all? What if that's the extent of our kind of Christian charity, to use a term from a different era? That, you know, we've got some change. We're like, well, the change is kind of annoying. We turned it into some money and we gave. Uh, what if in our heart, you know, that we did the same thing? We kind of gave leftovers to people. We wouldn't look at that and say that's really equitable. We would look at that and say there's probably something more. There's kind of the idea of general consideration or politeness. Now, here's a sign. I didn't take this picture, but I wish I had because it's a killer sign. But this essentially says that whether you are a hiker, a dude in a wheelchair, a frog, or a bicycle, be considerate. It's just a great message, you know, kind of spanning everything and everyone um, that you're supposed to be considerate of these things. Um, The Bible really gives more clear indication. Turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is one of many passages we could, we could kind of look at uh, this morning. But Philippians 2 is a great place to start with this. And in looking at saying this question, what am I supposed to do for them? Maybe you look at pictures like that and you say, okay, I've got some nice shoes. Am I supposed to feel guilty about them? Am I supposed to ship up my shoes and mail them somewhere? Like, what's being asked of me, right? The scriptures give a lot to indicate, but let's, uh, let's start with Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 3 says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only after your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I read that. And on the one hand, you could read that and say, that's pretty easy to do for people in Africa that I've never, ever met. All of a sudden, that gets really hard with the person that lives right next door to me. 
all of a sudden, that gets really hard for the person sharing my dinner table sometimes. All of a sudden, extended family visits, and you read that passage, you go, that gets really, really difficult. Here's what the Bible teaches over and over and over again. It could not be more clear about this. It's not really hard. It's impossible. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. I always consider other people more important than yourself. Am I the only one who struggles with this? I don't think so, right? That's a part of why we have something called societal problems, is that we see this is really hard to do. In fact, it's impossible. This is where the Christmas story comes in. This is where the Christmas story comes to bear, comes to bring weight to what we're talking about and invade what's being talked about. And this gift that we're talking about is this ongoing, transforming work of Jesus Christ in you, accomplishing His work. And that's the Christmas story. I I read a passage like that and I say, how on earth can we love all? I watch a video like that. I see pictures like that. I say, how on earth can I love all? What hope is there that I can be like this? Once again, I point to the Christmas story. And that's why it's such a celebration that Jesus came. Philippians 2, moving on in verse 6, it says this. It says, have the same attitude of that as, as of Christ Jesus. So we're talking about Christ Jesus here. Go on from verse 6. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." We read somewhere else in Scripture, it says this, God loved the world so much that He gave. Right? A present. It showed, it showed up in how He acted. The gift of God, of course, was Himself. But as we think about Christmas, as we think about the Christmas story, it's so much bigger than, than wise men, angels singing to shepherds, even going back hundreds of years to the, to the prophecies that were talked about, how a baby would come and save Israel from their slavery. It's, it's bigger and broader than all that. In fact, really, if you think about it, it starts in eternity past, which will trip your brain out for the entire vacation if you let it. But let me just read a couple of passages. This is the same Jesus, the same infant that we see in the manger depicted. Here he is, Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by Him and for Him. That's baby Jesus we're talking about. And then John 1 puts it this way. He, that same Jesus, is called the Word here. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's powerful. That's powerful that this eternal being that started in eternity past, which I don't even know what that means exactly, but just go back a way long time, and that's where it is, somewhere back there. That he came in this little tiny point in human history. If you think about it, we always start in Luke 2 with the Christmas story. Luke 10 is a part of the Christmas story too. Jesus being here, interacting with people. But even those 33 years, it's just a little snippet, right? Of the whole big kind of Christmas story, this mission God was on. Why did he come? Here's why he came, because we're bound. 
You and I are destined to sin and selfishness. Take a look at this guy. Some of you know the story of the Grinch, right? Poor Grinch just couldn't help himself. He was a Grinch, right? I mean, he couldn't help but be kind of sour-faced and dastardly and do mean things to people. Uh, even the Grinch understands this idea of, of you know, transformation that kind of needs to go on. It says, it says that he was born with a heart that was two sizes too small. The only way that the Grinch is ever going to love the Who's in Whoville is if he has an enlarged heart. So in the Grinch story, he gets a bigger heart, right? He gets a new heart, so to speak. And I look at that and I go, man, that's totally borrowed from the Bible. They lifted that. They better have paid some royalties to someone somewhere, you know. Because that's, that's a biblical tale right there. But the Bible says, you know, you don't have just too small of a heart that needs to grow a couple of sizes. That's kind of the message of, of hey, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and try harder this year. Don't be so selfish. Give more to people. Love better. Stop being so conceited. Think of other people once in a while more than yourself. But here's my question. How's that methodology going? Trying harder, doing better, being more humble. These things just don't work. We have our plans and we've tried to do it that way. We've tried the try more game. And it doesn't work. And that's that's a game that's been played for a long time. If you want to put it in biblical terms, that's kind of like playing by the rules of the law, capital L. Keeping the Ten Commandments and the spirit of the Ten Commandments all the time. Perfection. The Bible says you'll never earn it. You'll never do that. The only way to do it, of course, is to have not just a bigger heart, but a brand new heart. The Bible talks about it in terms a few chapters later from John 1 and John 3 about being born again. Having a heart that was a heart of stone that didn't need to grow to like a boulder, right? We don't need a bigger stone heart. We need a whole new heart. We need a heart of flesh. And that's a gift of God. Merry Christmas is really, really hard. Merry Christmas involves envy and selfishness and conceit and jealousy and gluttony. And that's just with your family members. I mean, that's, that's part of Christmas. I can remember, I have three brothers, and I can remember getting my gift, being super excited, and then looking over and seeing a brother that got something that I thought all of a sudden I wanted more than mine. That's called envy. That's being discontented with, with what I have. And jealousies come in. People come home from college and things are working out really well in your, in your younger brother's life or your older sister's life that you've never gotten out from under the shadow. And now you get to rehash all of that and celebrate their successes while you feel like, oh man, things aren't going so hot right now. That's jealousy and envy and conceit that comes. And these are just things that go on in a family. It's this sin nature we're born with. So if Merry Christmas is really, really hard, Merry Christmas to all is really impossible. I mean, these are people you accepted the invitation to go to their house and share a meal with them, right? They're inviting you. There's some connection already going on. Now take that outside the family and it gets really, really hard. This is the reason Jesus came to earth. Listen to Galatians 3.22. It says, but the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. In short, Jesus saves us from sin and its penalty, which is, which is death and pain and bondage. But he also saves us to a new life in him. 
Not someday new life, like eternal life starts when I die. You all come to my funeral. Hopefully you'll come. And then, uh, and then it starts. Yippee, now I get to start my eternal life. But he's saying, no, I'm saving you from a life of sin. I'm saving you from this misery that you've been bound in. And I'm today saving you to a new walk of life. I'm saving you to an eternal life that starts today, starts right now. And that's a really powerful thought. And God in us is what accomplishes this kind of massive picture of love all. I hear love all and I get overwhelmed. I think, Lord, how could you use me and my family? Lord, how could you use kind of our relatively small church to make an impact? I mean, we have a hard enough time sometimes loving people across the street and being in their lives and being in their neighborhoods, loving our family and our extended family. What could you do to take us and do big things? You don't have to turn there, but you can just look at 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9 says this, and this is a great place to start. And God is able, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The passage goes on in verse 11 to say this, you will be made rich in every way so that, why have you been made rich? Here it is, ready? So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, this passage was touched on last week. And it's really specifically talking about financial giving amongst churches. And Paul's writing about financially supporting other churches. And he talks about these poverty churches that are begging to give. Begging to be a part of the blessing of giving. Because they've tasted of that. And they go, why else would God have made us rich but to be generous? This is a passage that I want you to find incredible hope from. To read a a, a promise like this and begin to pray this in your life. God, you said that you're able to make all grace abound so that in all things, at all times, having all that I need, that I could be generous in these things. That I'll abound in what I need to do good works. That's massive, massive language. Super encouraging. But I also want you to keep coming back to the God is able, God is able, God is able. It must be a work of the heart. It must be a transformation from the inside. To just try harder is a losing game. Close with this. There's kind of a sadness to this season for me. And uh, every year I'd watch my friend Frosty the Snowman come on the screen. And as a kid, in my pajamas, I'd sit there and I would just like, Kids, enjoy every moment with Frosty. Because Frosty's going to melt. He's going to go away. Frosty's going to die, kids. Wake up! You know, and then my mom would pull me off the TV, calm me down, we'd go to the medical people. No, I'm kidding. Um, But it really was. I I would watch Frosty the Snowman and I'd have this this inner turmoil because I knew time was short. And it's like I almost couldn't couldn't enjoy it because I was like, Frosty's going to melt. And, and I look at that, I think, man, what an what a interesting picture for our lives. Like, I, I wonder if those who are able to see things from an eternal perspective would look at my life and say, Dave, wake up. I mean, just really enjoy what's going on right now. Really engage in this moment. Really live today. Because you're melting. 
in essence, right? I mean, you're going away. Time is really, really short. We can look at Frosty's life and say, yeah, he only lasts, you know, a short season. We know seasons change. And I wonder if God looks at our lives and, and begs with us and pleads with us the same way. I think he does. I've never found Frosty the Snowman in the Scriptures. But that same idea is pressed in on us. Instructing us, teach, teach me to number my days, Lord. Teach me to realize that life here on earth is really, really short. So my challenge to you this morning would be this. From a converted heart, love all. Engage and become someone's good Samaritan. Not, not like philosophically talk about it, but really engage and become someone's good Samaritan. You know what that might require of you today, next week, this next year? is you going outside of your comfort zone of who you usually interact with and not only go uh, to the Samaritans and help them out, but go off to those who've oppressed you and say bad things about you, which would be, in this story, the Jewish people. Going outside of your cultural context by faith and saying, God, I'm doing this because I trust in you and you've called me to have a Merry Christmas to all. Here's the two ways to respond. Ben, why don't you come on up? Number one is this. I would say to those who are not a Christian in here this morning, and coming to church is fantastic. Coming to church at Christmas time is even more fantastic. But the Bible makes it really clear. You don't, you don't start life until you're converted. That's the starting point for this. So to the unconverted, I would say turn from your sin. And there's sins of omission and sins of commission. Things you've done that you shouldn't have. Things you should have done that you've never done. And the Bible just says, Jesus says, turn from your sin. Trust in me. Trust in my plan of salvation. This is the way that it's going to do. Believe on me. And then from a converted heart, you will become the person God wants you to be. That's his promise. That's this process of what we call sanctification, right? It's walking in Christ's image. How about if you're a Christian this morning? Here's what I would say. Thank God that someone was the good Samaritan to you. Someone was the good Samaritan to you, and they reached out to you, and they gave their life, they gave words of life, they gave resources to you, they gave time, they gave example. Thank God for that person. Maybe even this season, write to that person that shared the gift of life with you and enjoy what you have, which is salvation. And thank people for that. Use words to bless them and encourage them to keep on sharing. Secondly, I would say this. Get up off of our couches, and I speak to myself this way as well, and walk in love toward your neighbors. What I mean by that is this. That may mean going outside of your personality comfort zone and initiating something. Some of you are like, oh, that's a piece of cake. What's the next level? What's the next thing God would want you to do? What gift could you offer to your neighbor? Maybe a plate of cookies is a starting point. Maybe you did that six years ago when you moved in. What's the next thing that needs to go on with your neighbors? Who is the man in the Good Samaritan story to you? Think about this. To the thieves, this traveling Jew was a victim to exploit. So what they do? They attacked him. To the priest and the Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid. And so they avoided him. They ignored him. But to the Samaritan... He was a neighbor to love and help. So what did he do? Took care of him. Pretty simple. No special skills needed. He just obeyed. And what Jesus says to the lawyer, I believe he says to you and I, and that is this. Go 
And literally the translation is this. Keep on doing it. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise and then keep on doing it. Go and do likewise some more. And once you've done that and tasted what it's like to give and not receive, go and do it some more. And when it gets super, super hard and discouraging and they're thankless, go and do it some more. When your other, you know, Samaritan friends don't understand why you're doing this, go and do it some more in my strength. And that's our challenge today. As we kind of wrap up Advent Conspiracy, go and do it some more. Let's pray. Father, I really do get from the Bible that your heart is toward all people. We read from Isaiah 52, God, that all nations would see your salvation. God, we see so many pictures of sadness and the weary world mourning. God, there's going to come a day when this weary world really will rejoice as you call to your own those who have trusted on the name of Jesus, those who have been saved and turned from their sins. And they get to enter into their rest. It's the second advent, God, that we're looking forward to. And our hope is placed firmly and squarely on that. Oh, God, would you wake us up to the realities going on in other countries right now. I pray that you would get our priorities straight, Lord. That we wouldn't do things like tithe on all of our spices and make sure all of our religious duties are in place, but neglect the more weighty things of mercy and justice and faithfulness. God, we need you to stir and awaken in us a heart's desire, a heart's mission, a family mission, a church mission that would say that we live, we exist to take on the form of a servant like our Lord Jesus Christ did. Thank you, God, for the incredible growth that I've seen in our congregation, that I've seen in the lives of individual people. God, we beg you, we cry out to you for more of the same this coming year. We love you in Jesus' name.